with one that came in via email. Uh, the question is, my high-functioning nine-year-old does not show creativity or imagination. Can I teach him creativity? Is it too late? What can I do? This is a question that we hear a lot about creativity. Uh, and we always want to let you know at home that uh, we would never want to make a disservice to your child by pretending that from this question that we know what's going on specifically with a child, but we can speak in generalities in general, sure. about creativity, can't we? Absolutely. Okay. So it is, you know, I always feel like I'm more useful if I actually know a little bit more about the child. Okay. But, so assuming this is a high functioning child, nine years old, absolutely you can teach the child creativity. There's no question about it. Um, in our play curriculum, for instance, there's um, several different sections that work specifically on teaching the child different aspects of creativity. And creativity is an interesting subject because it also involves um, kind of uh, you know, being able to not stick to specific black and white rules. Mm -hmm. So some of the skill required for that also falls within the executive functioning area. And it has, the child has to be able to understand that there is no correct answer. Um, it's not like, you know, if I show the child something and we want a creative response or a creative, uh, let's say, uh, production of some drawing or something, then the child has to feel comfortable that their response response can be anything. It doesn't have to be one thing or another. There's not going to be any correct answer there. And so, yeah, absolutely, it's very possible. And really, we do address this issue quite a bit in our curriculum, which is also in on skills. Yes, which I use at home. I love skills. Right. And so I'm guessing then that uh, with within teaching the creativity, if we're reinforcing, we're reinforcing any answer that they give. It, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, one example of one of the lessons that we teach is uh, you'll draw a circle mm -hmm. and you'll show it to the child and the, ask the child, Child, what are the things? What what, what is this? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, a child might say, "Well, it's a circle," mm -hmm. which is a very rote type of answer. Mm -hmm. But what else can it be? Well, it can be a cookie, it can be a pizza, it could be a you know anything, so many other things. Uh -huh. And so that's just one of the many smaller lessons that teach the child to understand first creativity and then to actually start to produce their own uh, product. Let's say yeah. that's creative. So it's it's not a simple as saying, oh, here are level, a series of exercises, right. because everything kind of ties in together and the child has to learn, uh, you know, to understand how, for instance, art, um, you know, you look at a Picasso and there's a, a huge amount of creativity there, yeah. right? But you can identify what it is, more or less. And so, but you don't just teach the child very specific things. You want the child to understand that creativity has to do with whatever I feel like expressing yeah. and then it's a series of different lessons that kind of tie in together so you know I, I wish I could say okay ABC this is what right. you do but this is a very abstract concept and it would be important to go in the correct order which really as I said is kind of listed and provided to you on skills yeah I, I kind of want to take a minute to talk about the first time that I 
heard about skills, I, I was at a place and you were talking about it. Okay. And one of the things that you said, uh, you talked about this big piece of paper that you guys used to put up in a mm -hmm. room, this big mm -hmm. huge that it would take up multiple walls right. that would list all of these different things that a child might need to learn. Right. And the thing that really clicked with me was that you said, imagine staring at that and I had been. I didn't even know that as a parent I had been, but imagine staring at that and not knowing where to start, what to teach, what the child actually needed. Right. And that the assessment in skills, this very, let's face it, it's lengthy. Yes. Um, it's exhaustive because it needs to be. You answer questions about your child, what your child can do and what your child can't do. Right. And then the system goes through and sorts it for you and says, it removes all the lessons you don't have to do from that huge piece of paper. That's right. And focuses on what you do. And that made so much sense to me. Right. I mean, you know, Shannon, if you look about, if you really think about what we're trying to accomplish here with ABA, mm -hmm. is we're trying to teach the child everything, everything mm -hmm. that he or she would have typically learned mm -hmm. if he or she wasn't under the spell of autism, let's say. So you look at, I mean, that sheet that you're referring to mm -hmm. was actually in my old, old office on the wall, <laughs> and we kept going in and adding, oh, and you know, we have to teach this to right. this to, and that was, I don't know, 20 years ago. And over the course of time, we uh, realized, okay, there's specific areas of functioning. I mean, we looked at all the assessments, standardized tests that are out there. So there's academic, there's motor, there's play, there's social skills, there's executive functions, uh, cognitive skills, uh, adaptive skills. Um, what am I missing? There, there's eight right. overall areas that pretty much um, comprise everything we do, right? And then we took everything we had written up to that point, lessons that really, when I left UCLA back in 1990, we had maybe 40 lessons or something like that, and I don't even know how many thousands we have now because over the course of the years, we've learned from our kids yeah. that, oh, this is an area that's really lacking. Let's study it, let's research it. You know, years ago when we started teaching things like theory of mind, cognitive skills, mm -hmm. nobody even understood that in our field. It wasn't something that we, we looked at as a behaviorist. So we brought in all these other assessments, research that was out there, and we realized, oh my God, we're trying to do the work of God. You know, it's yeah. like, there are millions of skills that a child will learn every year. And so that's what really went into skills. It was a, a massive, it's sort of an encyclopedia of everything that you should have learned at each age level. Yeah. And um, if for one, one reason or another you didn't, here it is and how you teach it. Now what's even more important, and going back to the issue of creativity, for instance, or any yeah. other skill, right? We don't, you know, as we're developing normally, we don't learn uh, advanced concepts at the same time that we're learning basic concepts, obviously. And a lot of those basic concepts have to be in place yeah. before we can understand the advanced concepts. Yeah. I can't really teach a child let's say, how to differentiate between um, a white lie and a not-so-good lie, you right. know, when the child is not even able to understand the concept of other people's perceptions or right. minds. So everything depends on a prerequisite skill, and that's what the skill software actually does. Yes. It puts it in an order that makes sense and so that the child's skills are built 
before the sort of the basic skills are there before we go on to advanced things. Absolutely. And so that A to Z kind of uh, thing that you're talking about with teaching creativity, there's re it's really like a staircase. Absolutely. And and that's all available in skills. But I think the, the main thing with this question is that it's not too late. Oh, no, not at all. Never. And it, it's absolutely possible <clears throat> to teach creativity. No and, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's there for you in no skills. No question. In fact, I'm just thinking of one of our kids, uh, Jana, who recovered, and I don't think she was really doing much art when she was, let's say, five, six, and or seven even. And later on, she started to really get into painting, yeah. perhaps around the age of nine. Uh -huh. And as you know, she is a very accomplished artist. Yes. I mean, her paintings are incredible. Yes. So, you know, these types of things absolutely are possible to teach and develop. Okay. That's good to know. Okay, let's take another question before we take a break. Uh, somebody wrote in and said, Dr. Grampuche, thank you for doing this. I have two nieces on the autism spectrum. One of them is 24, the other is seven. It is a tale of two cities. The 24-year-old has had no ABA therapy. The seven-year-old had intensive ABA. Our entire family sees how much improvement the seven-year-old has had and has in different ways tried to suggest to the parents of the 24-year-old to get help. Uh, they always respond that ABA is for little kids. Is there a program for my older niece that could help her? Where can we find that kind of a program? Interesting in the same family, because we get Mm -hmm. people comparing all the time we you know people knew different things at different time and there are a lot of teenagers and young adults who didn't have the benefit unfortunately of ABA and parents asking you know is this still something I think there's a lot of misconception about who what ABA is for who it's for and who can benefit from right it. right so you can benefit from ABA no matter how old you are very simple. So we have, we currently have uh, adults that we work with here as well. So the age doesn't uh, have anything to do with whether or not this technique works. Okay. So this whole concept of a window, people have said, oh, well, right. there's a window and past that time, ABA is not going to be effective. That's not the truth. No, no, it's not the truth at all. The window is very important for the following reason. When you're working with very little children or, you know, you have two, let's put it this way, you have two goals in ABA. One goal is you want to do an, uh, what's called a comprehensive program mm -hmm. where your, your goal is to teach the child everything, as I mentioned, right. they need to know in order to join the mainstream, in order to become as uh, you know, typically developing as possible or, or, or functional as possible. Now, the other goal is structured, a smaller focused programs, which have to do with teaching individual skills. So for instance, teaching toilet training, teaching uh, communication skills, um, any of those types of things on an individual basis. When, you when your goal is a comprehensive thing where you're really trying to teach the child everything they need, then you need the child to be young. Mm -hmm. That's where the window comes in okay. because uh, imagine that I would try to now take a 24-year-old right. and teach them everything that they should have learned from birth 
to the age of 24. That's impossible. It's yeah. just not possible because even if I start with a child, let's say, who's seven mm -hmm. and they're just starting intervention at that point, there are so many other demands on life at the age of seven. You know, yeah. you have to go to school, you have to have all these other types of uh, events in your life. There's simply not enough time. You know, there, I, even if I attempted with a 24 year old to do 40 hours of intervention a week, I still would not have enough time to teach that person everything they need right. to know. Right. So the window does apply because the younger you are, the more the possibility exists that I can teach you everything. Get now you think caught. about yeah, so if I have a two year old, there's a good chance that between the age of two and three I can teach you everything you need to know to start approaching three. Right. And if not, I have the next year too. And right. I can now I I'll add on everything between three and four as well. Okay. But it's still possible. With older adults and adolescents, you don't really start with the concepts of I want to teach you everything. Okay. You start with the concept of what's the most important thing for your life. Mm -hmm. So if I have the 24 year old I'd be looking and saying, what is this 24-year-old's functioning level? Right. First of all, and it's a series of questions you ask, you know, what's the most important thing for this individual? First of all, is the individual safe? Mm -hmm. And so safety skills would be a very important thing to teach adults. Okay. Secondly, <clears throat> is the individual able to take care of themselves? So some self-help skills, adaptive skills, you know, um, very routine things mm -hmm. like grooming, toileting, uh, feeding themselves, those types of things become issues. Um, and then third, you start looking at, okay, what are the other sort of functional skills that I can teach this individual? Is this person speaking or communicating right. in some form? If not, that becomes critical. And let's look, should we teach this person actually verbal language or maybe a nonverbal iconic system right. so that they become communicative? Um, let's say the person is communicating what vocational opportunities does the person have do I now I should now perhaps they're safe they can communicate they can take care of themselves to some extent now I should really focus on teaching them a job right so it goes in the order of importance mm -hmm. and also of course in this you know this is a special education world so we're looking at parents and guardians of that individual would be the people to help choose the order of things mm -hmm. and say these are the things that are most important and let's not forget that you know if you are let's say in your 20s and if you haven't been taught how to communicate then most likely you're going to have some tantrums aggressive yes. behaviors challenging behaviors because uh, you know you're frustrated how yeah. are you going to communicate with the world so it becomes really essential to try to get rid of those types of things and the way to do that is to teach the individual better communication yeah. so there's all these decisions that have to be made when it's an older individual but uh, there's no question that ABA will work for that person and yeah. will put them in a much better place and even if they were considered high function functioning and the skills that they needed were social skills right. uh, and executive function skills still effective, very effective in the 20s. So that is a whole different thing and it's such an important question because 
there's, you know, uh, historically, ABA focuses on with the older individuals, and there's thousands of published documents on this. ABA focuses more with, on adaptive functional skills, vocational skills, those mm -hmm. types of things. Um, when you start looking at, and, and strangely, we have a very large infusion over the last couple of years of, let's say, uh, adolescence. Mm -hmm. So kids starting around age maybe 14, 15, who are beginning to not, they, of course, they're delayed in social skills, but they're starting to experience a lot of depression, mm -hmm. anxiety. Yes. Uh, they're actually, we have kids coming in who are suicidal oh. uh, because they're so, uh, they are very high functioning, but they are now beginning to experience just all of the isolation of, uh, you know, trying to socialize, trying to yeah. be with peers, but they really don't understand why they can't and why don't they fit in. And all of this, of course, causes a lot of, uh, you know, depression for the kids. Yeah. That's so, a hard time when you're neurotypical. Anyway, exactly. So, and, then, and then add in being on the spectrum, it, it exacerbates exactly. it. Exactly. Like, you know, not even being able to identify why they're bullied. Right. Not being Ugh. able to understand, you know, um, one of someone gave me an example just yesterday where they were saying that their son is so bright. And, you know, as you know, a lot of our Asperger's or high functioning children are exceptionally right. bright in yeah. certain areas. And uh, so this child uh, was is in, I think, seventh grade and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a very, very strong regular ed school, but this child has a lot of sort of the executive functioning cognition issues and, and doesn't have friends, yeah. but you know, he took an exam and he got a very low score on the exam. I think it was in science or something. And when you look at it, it was because he, the exam was a three page exam and he uh, didn't realize that there are questions on the back side of every page. So he answered <sighs> the front side of every page, got every single question that he answered correct and the backsides were all left blank so he ended up getting half the score wow. now so just imagine yeah. how difficult it is just a tiny little thing not no you know not realizing oh you got to look at the other side you know right. uh, yet he's so bright that he gets all of it correct mm -hmm. okay so those are the types of things that happen to our kids, and that's just one example. Yeah. Now, when you look at those children and you start intervening with them on the level of executive functions, uh, teaching them things like, you know, identifying social emotional reactions in others or being able to read nonverbal cues, that starts to become more cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, there's absolutely the same principles of ABA still there, and that's why we have have it in our executive functioning curriculum, mm -hmm. right, to teach uh, using ABA. But quite honestly, the the, mo the way that you're teaching it is much more, let's say, naturalistic, much more trying to get the child to think things through yeah. rather than just memorize. Right. And so that portion of the intervention just takes a lot longer. It yeah. becomes much harder because you don't really want to um, have the child memorize scenarios. Right. You want them to actually practice aspects of life yeah. and learn how, how they did things wrong, what they could do differently, yeah. what was missing, all that sort of yeah. thing. But as a parent, I have to say that 
it, even though it's painstaking and it takes a long time, it's so rewarding. It's great. Those are the kinds of things that we're working on with my son now. And it's amazing when they start to put it together. I always say that, that the executive functions and cognition, it's really those puzzle pieces that we always talk about. Once you see them start to go in, it's amazing. Absolutely. The things that you see come out of their mouths and the behavior that you see, it's very rewarding. It's, it's terrific because you it see is. the kids have these like aha moments. Exactly. You know, and it's like, Oh, oh, that's what this is about, yes. you know, and then they, they start to apply it to their lives. It's terrific. It yeah. is terrific. And so just the, the last part of this question was, where can they find that kind sure. of a, kind of a program? And obviously skills has those uh, lessons yes, in skills. Yes, skills does. And, you know, in skills, one thing that's important is that we say we took the curriculum up to typical developmental age of eight mm -hmm. okay that means and that's very important for parents to understand that uh, what it means is that the material that's in skills has everything that would be for a typically developing up to the age of eight now let's say not we're not talking just about the chronological age we're talking right. about the mental age right so with a typical child your chronological age and your mental age are the same okay um, with our kids, you can be 14, but right. you're functioning like an eight-year-old, or you could be 24, yeah. and you have so many gaps that in certain areas you're functioning like, let's say, a three-year-old even. Right. So skills continues to apply no matter what the age of the individual is, the chronological age, because really if I can, let's say the 24-year-old, if I can get that person up to the functioning level of an eight-year-old, that's very functional. It is. That's, you know, eight-year-olds are very competent in a lot of different areas and if I can do that then there's no stopping me from teaching them additional skills beyond absolutely. that absolutely and I always like to say that especially in the executive functions curriculum there's stuff that I have oh, learned from oh, no. I think it's a great business coach I have learned from it and, and I, I think to myself <laughs> oh okay that starts to emerge in an eight-year-old yeah. how old am I and this is helping me absolutely so I think there's a lot there for a 24 year old Definitely, <laughs> absolutely so we do see adults at card I know that a lot of other centers also do see adults yeah Yes. You know, with the infusion of insurance funding now all over the yes. states, um, adults are able to access these interventions now, thank God, finally. Absolutely. And there's funding for it. So um, I don't know where this individual lives, but, right. you know, uh, if CARD can't help them or skills can't help them, we can certainly try to find other centers close to where they are, even if they were to call in to okay. CARD. So want to remind you, uh, the centerforautism.com, go, go centerforautism.com. You can go to the locations tab, click on that and see if you, you are near an office. And if not, you'll see the 800 number there exactly. and you can call in and ask for recommendation for where you are. Wonderful, wonderful advice. We're going to take a break and come back and answer some more questions with Dr. Doreen Grampichet. We want to encourage you during the break to continue. There are a lot of questions. We're probably not going to get through all the ones for today, but we, we bank them to use them for other weeks. So keep your questions coming in. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Autism Live. Right now it's Wednesday and we're doing our special segment, Ask Dr. Doreen. This is when you get to write in, call in, Skype in, whatever you would like, and ask Dr. Doreen Grampichet a question. We always like to remind you that uh, we don't 
we're not able to give child specific advice because that would be a disservice to your child. Uh, you're writing in and asking questions and there there is no way that anyone could glean from that all the things that are going on in your home. We talk all the time about finding the functions of behavior and there's a process to do that. So we don't want to in any way make it seem as though we could tell what's going on specifically with your child from your short messages. However, there are a great deal of things that we can talk about, information that we can give and you are your wealth of knowledge. Well, so, I'm happy to do this. It's well, the most I fun part of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I'm learning so much. Okay, we have a question that looks like it's about toilet training. Uh, my eight-year-old is still in diapers. The worst is at night. He digs into his diaper and smears it on the walls. Uh, very challenging. We have tried putting him in pull-ups with his zipper pajamas on backwards to prevent him from getting into the diaper. This works in the winter, but in the summer, the pajamas are really hot. I wish I could change this one thing. I'm desperate can you help this is an area that you I always say toilet training you either have it or you don't mm -hmm. and it's if you have it your life is so much better and if you don't it seems like this unattainable thing sometimes I don't you know to me toilet training is actually a pretty simple procedure and, and I you know you guys say that and yeah. I and I really want for parents to hear that because there's so much hope in hearing you say that even with an eight-year-old right that's it's a pretty simple thing yeah definitely okay so you know there's a number of different procedures that are used for toilet training and I wouldn't even um, attempt to tell a parent you know just follow the Fox and Azrin procedure or something but there are procedures um, I think we also have them within skills on our website they're kind of detailed we even have brochures on how to the procedures but okay. When, so, you know, and any behavior analyst can guide you through these various steps. But you're, what's more important about this question, I think, is that you're looking at an eight-year-old right. who, um, so, you know, the eight-year-old, obviously, we have to really uh, uh, focus on teaching this individual appropriate toilet training skills. That's right. kind of something that has to happen anyway. Okay. But right now, the issue is, he is, um, I think the question said that number one, he's trying to get the uh, diaper off and he's putting his hand inside the diaper and then trying to smear all over the walls yeah. and so on. And then there was a second point that was that he's trying to take his pajamas off because it's too warm. Okay, so as a behaviorist, what do you do? You quest you ask the function of the behavior. So why is he putting his ends in his diaper? Why is he trying to smear the feces, let's say, all over the walls? What What is the antecedent to that? Why is he doing that? Or why is he taking off his pajamas? Well, we already said it's too warm. Right. So in behavior analysis, until you understand the reason and you know then you are whatever manipulation you do might not work right so let's assume that he's taking off his pajamas because it's too warm okay we need to deal with that let's okay. either cool down the room or take off his pajamas not even use the pajamas at this point okay so now we're talking okay but if we don't use the pajamas he is actually putting his hands in there and smearing well why is he doing that is it uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. I, I would assume that it's pretty uncomfortable for mm -hmm. him when that happens. So we have to make sure that actually he does not have the opportunity, he doesn't have to have his diaper on with uh, feces in there for a long period of time because not only is that going to disturb him, bother him, but it's going to cause rashes, all kinds right. of problems. And if we're able to not allow that to go on for a long time, then he's 
not going to smear because you won't have the opportunity. So the real question is, can the parent or a therapist perhaps spend the night with this individual, start to determine a schedule of when this child wakes up, when does this process start, can we try, does the child have a bowel movement every night, mm -hmm. is this happening every night? Um, can we perhaps, you know, re uh, move the child's dinner time to an earlier time, make sure the child actually goes to the bathroom before having their um, diaper put on? Mm -hmm. In some cases, children, they learn to actually only void when they have a diaper on because they think this is where I'm supposed to poop, you know? Right, right. So perhaps put the diaper on at six o'clock until eight, nine o'clock before the child is in bed so that he does void, so that when he goes to bed, you change the diaper, you put on a new diaper, he might not do it anymore because he's now gone. Okay. Okay, so like trying to move the period of time that he voids a little bit earlier, or you figure out when it's happening during the night and you try to interrupt it. You literally take the child to the toilet before or you change their diaper multiple times so right. they stop the habit because something it has now become a habit if they're right. doing it pretty continuously right. and so it always goes back to and you know why do our kids and, and feces smearing is actually one of those interesting old symptoms you know it's been one of the ones that used to happen a lot more with a lot of our kids and right. now there's so I find that uh, you know, our kids are what they're they have some sensory need where they're doing this type of thing because they like the the uh, sensation of it's sort of like uh, finger painting. Okay. And so, can we actually allow this child at other times to do an activity such as finger painting, which would then maybe reduce his need for feces smearing? So, what I'm basically going at is. You have to always identify the function of the behavior. This child is not just waking up and feces smearing for no reason. Right. He's doing it either because he's uncomfortable, either because he has this need for the sensory aspect of it, um, or who, who else, you know, right. I don't know, a million other reasons. He's hot, he's whatever, or he gets attention when the parent comes in and deals with it, whatever right. it is. And then when you identify those functions, you replace them with something that's more functional. So is if he has sensory needs, let's give him sensory needs in other places uh, that are more appropriate, you know, like finger painting. If he has discomfort, let's make him more comfortable. Uh -huh. If we can, if it's just developed into a habit where the child does it and then it's rewarded somehow, let's break that habit. Let's start to get the child to go and void before he actually goes to sleep or even if you have to, I mean, when, sometimes when, with older kids, when we do toilet training, we actually have the therapist with the child overnight. And honestly, we will wake the child up on an hourly basis. I mean, I hate to say it. Initially, you do right. that because you're trying to figure out the exact time frame or window of time that this occurs so that you can prevent it before it happens. Right. These are not behaviors that you want to punish ever right. because you just you don't use punishment on these types of things. Right. There's a reason the child is doing that okay. and you just need to try to divert it before it happens. What I love about what you're saying is there's all these logical steps and things to do. There are lots of scenarios, lots of variables, so it depends on the individual child. But what I'm hearing in this question is a parent who is it's a little desperate. bit on this place of being desperate and and 
really what they've done is try to find a way to outsmart getting into the diaper instead of dealing with the issue. And, and exactly I love right. the fact that you're dealing with and, and that you believe and know that with the right intervention, this child won't be doing this anymore. Oh, there's no question. It's like saying if a child hits, mm -hmm. what I'm going to do is tie his hands behind his back. Well, but he, there's a reason he's hitting. Right. What's the reason? Let, let's yeah. allow him to communicate. Because, you know, what I always say, Shannon, is with our kids, all their challenging behaviors, all the stuff they do that's not typical, let's say, is communication. They're trying to tell you something. Yeah. So to begin with, with this child, why didn't he learn toilet training and now he's eight? We really have to identify those types of things. Right. Perhaps with this child, he really feels I should only uh, void in a diaper. Yeah. You know, you have to break that habit. Or maybe for him, the sensory aspect of the reward is higher than the, let's say, social reward that he would get by actually going to the toilet. So it's kind of like understand for the child, from the child's perspective. Right. Like, why is he doing this? Why is he doing anything? And don't try to just physically prevent it. Right. Replace it. Right. Yeah. And don't beat yourself up that oh. he's eight and he hasn't learned it. It's just that it's time to do something different. And I, yes, and thanks for saying that because, you know, I have my own kids, of course, and I know that it is so many of the things we say, you know, the parents are so tired and yeah. wiped out. I mean, good God, you know, it's yeah. so difficult. And I certainly never, ever want to tell a parent to do this, this, and this and just say, hey, it's, you know, it's up to you. I really do believe that our parents are overloaded. They have more on their plates and just these types of things. You know, when I say wake the child up every hour, that means you're awake every hour. Right. You're awake the right. whole night, you know, <laughs> which is really why I very strongly advocate for therapists, yes. because I don't while I think it is probably one of the most important things for parents to be involved in intervention. Yeah. I don't think any parents could handle it on their own. Yeah. There is no way. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 somewhat years. And if I had to deal with my own child by myself and do everything from the beginning to the end, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Well, I can, I can tell you, I could not have done it. If, yeah. if card had not come into my home and done what they did, I, I, we would not be where we are because I could not have done that. Absolutely. I mean, some of these things are just, way too difficult yeah and toilet training while I say it's a very straightforward procedure it does really require uh, continuous attention right for a few days at least so that's why I say that it's important to have a therapy team helping get the child into actual regular toilet training but if you get the right intervention in there and get some help and support this is very doable that's what I'm hearing oh, no ultimately question about doable it. absolutely okay great that's wonderful we're gonna pause and take a break and come back and answer some more questions you can keep the questions coming in if we don't get to all of them today we won't get to all of them today if we don't though we'll say them for another week. So stick with us. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Autism Live and our special segment, Ask Dr. Doreen. You guys are writing in and we really appreciate that. We want to keep the questions coming. Our next question uh, that we have from Facebook, I would like to know why my son walks on his tippy toes and what that has to do with autism. Boy, that's an interesting question. So um, walking on your toes has been classified behaviorally. It's been classified as one of the self-stimulatory behaviors mm. or stereotypical repetitive behaviors that don't really have a function. Okay. Um, so that means 
we don't really know. Okay. Let's just put it that way. Um, there are some medical articles that talk about uh, there's a there's a, a phenomenon called encopresis, which is when children or anyone uh, attempts to hold their feces. So they they they're um, let's say exerting control mm -hmm. uh, over their lives by not going to the bathroom. And the interesting thing about that is that. Often, not always, but often with encopresis, there's toilet, there's toe walking. Really? I, yeah, there's this uh, correlation, I suppose, huh. of when you're trying to tighten up those muscles, toe walking assists you in doing that. Interesting. So there have been theoretical uh, explanations of perhaps our kids are doing it because they have GI issues and because they get used to the fact that they tighten up uh -huh. because otherwise they'd have to go all the time or something like that. Whether or not that's true, I really don't know because nobody's really looked at that uh, more recently. Now, I will say um, a lot of my kids in the past, years ago, we used to have a lot more toe walking than we do now. Interesting. And what we've always done is we've always just prevented it. That's sort of an easy one that will eventually go away. There have I've had some children who actually do have various issues with the muscles of the ankle, and uh, you know they, for instance, I had one child who actually required surgery, and then after that he was able to walk normally. Wow. Um, and but I don't know. I mean, those are all just theoretical things that are out there. From a behavioral perspective, kids who are toe walking, all you really do is you put on, let's say, boots right. or high tops and those types of things, and you teach them how to place the bottom back of their foot um, on the ground correctly and then it does go away and it's not replaced by something more aberrant. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about toe walking which is kind of also interesting because I'm so like into all the other aspects of you know that's the medical explanation that's the behavioral explanation the sensory explanation uh -huh. which is kind of interesting as well. You think that when I talk about sensory it might have something to do with you know the ex the feeling of the muscle but no there when uh, I learned this just I don't know maybe five ten years ago when we started to uh, work with some of our kids with prism glasses okay, okay? now when you have children who whose visual field and this is very like I have a lot of kids where their visual field is distorted in some fashion and you you can test this very easily you throw a ball at the child there's no way he can see it coming at him. There's a number of tests, and you see our kids have no binocularity. They don't have, they're not able to actually use their eyes the way we do. So um, it, what was fascinating for me was that I was really, I, I try to try all the interventions on myself. Because uh -huh. I kind of want to know, what is this going to do to my child, you know, to the right. kids, and how is it going to feel? So there was a child whose visual field was distorted up or down, I don't remember. In other words, um, it's hard to explain, but when you see the actual glasses, you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It, basically, when you look at something, you have a specific field, and in this child's case, his visual field placed everything slightly higher. Wow. Okay, and with most kids, it's actually slightly to the right or left, which is kind of interesting as well. It so is. they're missing the same things we see. Yeah. But so we had gotten him these glasses, um, prism glasses. Um, I think the doctor's name, uh, East Coast doctor. I'm not. I don't want to say his name incorrectly, but I think it was Kaufman. I'm not sure. Anyway, it was uh, very interesting because. 
uh, as we put it on him and he started to habituate to these glasses, his toe walking went away. Interesting. Now, I put the glasses on and I noticed, oh my gosh, it makes me feel like I'm walking downhill. That's what it looked like, right? Now, if you start walking downhill, you actually, or is it, yeah, downhill, you actually start to toe walk because you you put more pressure on the toes than on the back. Right. And so um, I started to really read about this and I realized that in many cases when the child's visual field has been corrected, their toe walking stops. Wow. So the whole concept of toe walking could also have to do with the visual field. And again, you know, unfortunately, there's so many aspects to autism that people don't do the right research. Right. The sensory aspects of autism are fascinating to me because I think a lot of the behaviors our kids develop have to do with how they visual, how they receive. Yeah. And information, perceptual, visual, auditory, everything. And this might be one of those cases. Fascinating. Right. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. So, you know, no way of knowing how this individual child toe walks, but lots of things to, to look consider. at. To consider, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I know uh, I, my child, we eventually discovered that he had a visual thing that I was not aware of. It took me a while to mm -hmm. key into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was actually our therapist at CARD who said he needs to be evaluated. And it makes so much sense to me now um, and and some of the things that he was struggling there were so many things that he would fly through lessons there were other lessons he wouldn't get because there was this one area of visual being able to focus his eyes that he couldn't do and right. we've now been able to strengthen that right. and those things got better so that's very fascinating oh, to me right so in this case I would actually tell the parents okay behaviorally you can fix this right yeah you can stop it from happening but try to find out Again, why? Why is it happening? Is it because the child has a different visual sensory field? Is it because he has GI issues? What, what's causing right. it? Very, very interesting. Right. Okay. Uh, let's take another question before we take a break. Uh, how can I help my child understand personal space? He doesn't get it. Mm. <laughs> I know. That's, so That's a hard one. But it's, an, it's a, yeah, it's a kind of a cute one, actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all have culturally, we have different personal spaces, That's right? True. I mean, here in the States, we have a certain appropriate personal space and in other countries like you go to Japan and the personal space is you know very narrow wow. so uh, that's a that's a really easy um, procedure to teach you essentially just really uh, reward the child for expanding the space and you know behaviorally you can teach the child to have more appropriate space simply by shaping it okay. you know? so you reward more and more distance but again because I don't know the functioning level of right. the child if it's a higher functioning child obviously you'd want to really in get involved with teaching the child about personal space and the concept of personal space and making the child understand that standing too close to people is making them feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. now I can't really go into that if my child doesn't already understand the other person's perspective takes me back to a series of lessons for theory of mind and cognition. So are all those in place with this child? If they are, then you really start to focus on the concept of what is personal space and why do we have it? What, what does it mean to us? If the child doesn't have those concepts, then you can behaviorally reward the child for appropriate space okay. and then start to teach each of those concepts until they understand why. And I would imagine as you're teaching those concepts, you're, you're gaining ground 
zone towards this, but other goals as well. Absolutely. Beyond personal space. Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. We're almost out of time, so I guess I'm going to take one more question rather than go to break because I want to fit one more in. Um, okay, I love my son, but I wish he could learn how to calm himself down when he is headed toward a meltdown. Mm. Is that teachable? Oh, yes, that is so teachable. Okay. One of my kids who had, was really in really bad health condition. I mean, this little boy had diarrhea 10 times a day, uh, had so many different types of pain that we were identifying. He was nonverbal, very little visual contact. I mean, he was very much in his own world. Uh, he was head banging, he was biting his arms. I mean, all kinds of stuff out of frustration, you know, and out of pain probably because, I mean, good Lord, for years he had significant diarrhea. So we, with him, we uh, put a bean bag in the corner of his room. Um, he, if he, he had a pacifier, that would really help calm him. Uh, he loved music, and so we had his headphones and music in that area. He had this big teddy bear that was his you know, sensory thing that he would calm him. And we taught him to actually, uh, and this is how we taught him. So every time we saw a, a meltdown coming on, we'd stop the intervention, teach him to ask for a break. Mm-hmm. He would ask for a break, and then he would also ask for, I think we called it Comfy Corner or something. Okay. And he would touch the picture of Comfy Corner. Okay. We'd send him over there for maybe a minute, he'd calm down, and then he'd come back to intervention. So you ha- you can easily teach the child. You have to identify before it happens. Right. You have to produce a place that is very comforting. Okay. But then most importantly, you have to make the child, you have to teach the child to request that right. place because you don't want to stop intervention. Um, and you definitely don't want to stop intervention if the child's already started to melt down. Right. So the key to this is to determine before the meltdown. Right. Find that time frame. The minute before, the second before the meltdown, mm-hmm. stop intervention. Prompt the child to request their comfy right. space and then allow them to go there and then reward it and then make sure they come back and continue. Okay, and, and again, you're saying requesting, but that isn't necessarily a vocal request. No, not at all. You, you gave the example like I, of pointing. Exactly. Um, so it could be a sign. It could be that iconic communication. In fact, in this, in this case, the child had very little visual uh-huh. so he actually had a uh, his uh, iconic system was textures so we had set it up with textures because we knew that's basically the only way you can communicate and the texture for his comfy area was carpet okay so that he would touch that and he would like feel them and touch that and then we knew he needs to go chill for a bit okay yeah. but so important the teaching all those different elements those components that you were just saying that you got to catch it before having them request it giving it whatever that is when they request it and then making sure that they come back to the intervention exactly because and think about it I don't know, I want to go over time but this is really important yeah. think about again it go back it goes back to why is he having meltdowns right figure out the reason for his meltdowns that'll I mean the comfy corner is helping him de-stress that's great right. but what's causing those meltdowns maybe the sessions are too long right to begin with maybe you want to break down the sessions maybe he's not getting enough reinforcer 
anyway. So maybe you want to just put him on a routine schedule of his comfy corner anyway uh, right. throughout the day. So he, you're, this is antecedent control. So right. you're basically giving him a much more calming life to begin with. Right. So when we melt down, why are we melting down? Because we have stress of, right. over something. There's right. too much demand. So in all of those cases, you look at the overall and you reduce the demand, increase the reward. That's what we do in our own life. I was just going to say, it's like coffee breaks for us. Coffee we take breaks moments or take a we, nap or yeah. whatever. Yeah, we do it. And that's always what you're doing with ABA. Yeah. So if a child is routinely having meltdowns, he's trying to tell you something. Okay. Yeah. Really super duper important. I can't thank you enough. This oh, has been so informative. And I'm, I'm always excited that you guys get a chance to write in and ask questions. And we want you to keep those questions coming in uh, and having more opportunities for us to learn about because ultimately we all want to be the most effective member of our child's team that we can possibly be to help that child to gain the most progress that they can absolutely and knowing these techniques helps us cope better I because agree. it just teaches us how to handle situations so that it doesn't destroy us doesn't stress us out so as a parent i think you know all of these things are very important because they really just help us survive as well <laughs>